thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we continue our study of the book of Genesis. We're now in chapter 47. Last chapter in 46, we've seen that um, Jacob and all his children and children's children came down to meet Joseph. And now they are being settled in the land of Goshen. And that's what this chapter is about. And the, Well, actually, that's part of the, what this chapter is about. Another part has to do with the dealing or the management of the famine. Last week I mentioned to you something about the reason why uh, shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And what I've told you was actually not entirely correct. I stated that the reason is because to the Egyptians, there is uh, many of their gods are seen as bulls and cows and and, and calf, etc. And that is true. However, it did not preclude the Egyptians from slaughtering these animals themselves. So it isn't entirely true that the reason why they, there, were, there were an ab- abomination had to do with the cultic system of Egypt. It, after looking into it further, it really has to do with the fact that, number one, there are foreigners, and number two, they are potential threats to the rest of, of, of the Egyptians who can see in, in them someone come in and taking over their land and their possession. Uh, that still doesn't fully explain why the word abomination was used. So... I'm not completely satisfied with that explanation either, but I just wanted to make this correction. Um, again, the, indeed, the Egyptians did see in these animals those those gods, but yet, um, reading more on ancient Egypt, you do notice that they had these animals and would slaughter them in specific cases, mostly in cultic cases, but not always, and would eat them. So uh, it wasn't entirely true that, uh, that, that that was the reason. Now, perhaps... Maybe because to the Egyptians, these animals were only animals that had no uh, sacrificial meaning whatsoever, may be a cause of concern. That is possible. I'm not entirely sure. It's a point of detail, but I wanted to clear it before we proceed. So, verse 1. Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers... What is your occupation? Uh, They said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now we pray you, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen, and if you know 
and any able men among them put them in charge of my cattle. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then, Jacob's, then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh has com- had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their descendants, uh, of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they, uh, with which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your cattle, and I will give you food in exchange for your cattle, if your money is gone. So they brought their cattle to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the asses, and he supplied them with food in exchange for all their cattle that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, and the herds of cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we, we with, your, with our land, will be slaves to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe upon them. The land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made slaves of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and your fifth shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be slaves to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years, so that the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were a hundred and forty-seven years. And when a time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh, and promise to deal loyally and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So 
There are, as I said, two parts in this chapter. The first one is the conclusion of this whole saga where Israel and all those who were with him come down into Egypt. And the other part is the dealing with the famine and the, uh, and the way Joseph if effectively gets all the land and all its possession into Pharaoh's hands. We'll have quite a bit to say about that. Now, we notice that Joseph is going to settle his father and his brothers into the land of Goshen, where they're going to gain possession, and they're going to multiply exceedingly. At the same time, and that's why these two events happen in this chapter, and they set one against the other, the Egyptians themselves are being dispossessed of everything they own, all the way to, into, all the way through until they actually sell themselves as slaves to Pharaoh. Here is what, uh, and, and to begin with, I think the very key thing we want to focus on is the word that has been used repeatedly, multiple times, and that word is sojourn. You notice, for instance, when Pharaoh asked uh, Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? Jacob said, the days of the years of my sojourning. Not life, sojourning. So St. John Chrysostom has this to say about that. Since he saw the old man was in extreme old age, he asked his age. Jacob replied, the years of my sojourn on earth. See how all good people have the same attitude to this life as if living in a foreign land. I mean, hear what David also says later. I am a sojourner upon earth, sojourning in a strange place. While Jacob says, the years of my sojourn on earth. Hence, Paul too said about these good people that they recognized they were strangers and sojourners on earth. The years of my sojourn on earth, he says, 130 of them have been few and harsh. They do not compare with the lifespan of my forebears. Here Jacob is referring to the years of servitude he endured under Laban in consequence of the flight made on account of his brother, and as well following his return from there, the grief he suffered for so long on account of Joseph's death and all the misfortunes in the meantime. After all, how great do you think was the fear he had when in retribution for their sister, the company of Simeon and Levi in one fell swoop wiped out a city and took captive everyone in Shechem. He said at that time too, remember, to show the, uh, the anguish with which he was stricken, you have made me so hated as to be an enemy to the inhabitants of the land. I, for my part, am few number, and if they assemble against me, they will strike me and shall be exterminated, and I shall be exterminated along with my house. Hence Jacob says, few and harsh have been the days of the years of my life. A, a constant reminder um, about the proper perspective we have to have about life. Constant reminder of the right perspective we have to have about life. Um, we, we tend to make plans for this life, and we have to. We, t we have hopes, and we think the future will turn this way or that way, and we must, because this is how things have been ordained for us here. But oftentimes, we always forget that everything we do is only an instrument to a final end that those things we're planning for and those things we're hoping to attain are themselves an instrument and oftentimes a symbol or a sign to something yet to come. And it is that bit that we tend to forget. And the reason is because for many of us, or maybe not many, maybe not the majority here, but generally speaking around here in this, in this country, this country has known for 
for the most part, 400, almost 500 years of, um, of um, I wouldn't say uninterrupted peace, but at least stability. And this country has known crisis and difficulties, but overall there is a sense of stability that uh, where you don't, ha- you don't have necessarily the sense that you live in a foreign land. For those who had to leave their home country and go somewhere else, that's more acute. Here, it is really key for us to understand that God does these things on purpose, in that if we were to feel all too comfortable, if we were to feel that we belong somewhere, that sense of belonging oftentimes acts against the desire for heaven. For most of us, would not want to leave that which we love. And it is not completely clear to me that feeling comfortable, feeling rooted, belongings in some place is necessarily a good thing. It could be a very good thing if it is properly used, used for its final end, if it is used as a sense or remembrance of what is yet to come, and you're able to leave it behind without any regrets. But it will be effectively a curse if you're so attached to it that you just cannot leave it behind. And I do not only talk about land or possession, but I also talk about family and children. And that is really key to us to understand. Our children are not ours, and our final aim, our final goal, is not to see our children become doctors or surgeons or nurses or whatever the case may be. Our final aim And that's the one thing we must be focused on is what? Get ourselves to heaven first. Yeah? Then we can worry about everybody else. But first, we need to get to heaven. Yeah? That's why Jacob had that outlook all along. He's a sojourner. Unlike Pharaoh, who settled. Right? Very difference. Great difference between two. One, Pharaoh seems to have it all, possess it all. The other seems to have nothing. Being, being chased by famine. But if you look at it from a spiritual point of view, you would see that God is effectively, in a, in a very, very uh, particular way, caring for Jacob, making sure that he never really possesses anything, so that in the end he can possess everything. Yeah? And hence, for us today, we view things oftentimes through the wrong prism. We think that hardship and exile and leaving behind land and homes and possession and everything else is a bad thing. It can be a bad thing if it turns you to resentment and hatred and anger and, and hard, harden, hardening of heart. It could be a very good thing if it gets you to, to enter deeply into the mystery of, uh, of uh, our salvation, into the church, if you become more religious, more pious, if you understand that the only, thing, the only constants you have in, in your life and in this world is the Lord himself, nothing else, right? Again, I'm, I'm being careful here because I, none, of the, none, none of what I'm talking about has only one angle to it. It really depends on how it's being received and lived. Hmm? So we have to keep these things in mind. But again, are you a sojourner or are you a resident? So that's the question. You don't have to answer me, but thank you. I, I do appreciate that. But it's a question for you to think about. Where do, where do, and how do you know? How do you know what is really important to you? And you, you know it by your actions. You know it by what comes to your mind when you wake up. You know it by your day, how it's structured. What are those important things in your day? 
is prayer first and foremost in your day? Is that really important? Or, or, it is, or is it only relegated to Sunday? Is when you, when you meet somebody, when you talk to someone, or you, or you see someone, are you, uh, are you asking the Lord for ways to help this person on their way to heaven? Is everything you do to others geared towards heaven, particularly your children? Are you raising children or are you raising saints? There is a big difference between the two. If you're raising children, you're raising them selfishly for yourself. If you're raising saints, you're raising them for God. And there is a big difference in the way and your outlook on your children, what you would do for them and not do for them, what you would give them and what you won't give them, and how you discipline them and how you love them. When you look at them, are you seeing in front of you grown-up saints in heaven? Or are you seeing just kids? Big difference. When you talk to people, do you see people in heaven? Are you wondering, how, what is, why, is, why am I talking to this person right now? What does God want from me that I can give to this person? When an ambulance goes by, do you, see, do you say a prayer for the person in that ambulance? Do you understand, God, may I put you there because it's your prayer and only your prayer was going to save that person? It's this interconnectedness between all of us before the Lord that is so important for us to keep in mind when we look at ourselves as sojourners. We are only here on our way. You understand? Okay, that's really key for us. You have those leaving their land. They're in famine. They're in, in, there's famine around them. There is pretty much nothing. And there's the Pharaoh who lives there, who's secure, who has everything he needs and he wants. And on the surface, he looks like he's got the right ticket. But the reality is very different. Right? Now, last week we saw that Joseph told his brothers what to say when he stands before Pharaoh. And now he goes over and carries it forward. Pharaoh so far has heard nothing of the conversation that we've seen last week. Now he's being presented. So Joseph is the one who does it. So he is going to personally inform the king of his family's arrival because Pharaoh has originally extended the invitation to them through him. So again, he is the mouthpiece for everyone. He is the one who speaks on their behalf. And he, tell, he basically set them, settled them in the region of Goshen. And he predisposes Pharaoh to re- receive the requests of the brothers. Now, what is therefore the, uh, Joseph representing in that case? Who is he a symbol, or, 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 yeah, a symbol of? A priest, yes. But that's not what I had in mind. Not Jesus. Our Lady. He's taking care of everything. And in, in that case, you can see, again, I told you about the four senses of Scripture and how we read Scripture through the four senses, the first one being the literal sense and then the three spiritual senses. And this is something that the Catechism teaches us in paragraph 101 through 115. Now, when you start reading Scripture this way, you start to see, you begin to see the role of Our Lady or herself or her shadow, if you will, throughout most of the Old Testament. She's there all over the place if you have eyes to see. And here's one particular example where in this text, the Holy Spirit goes beyond the intention of the earthly author who wrote Genesis based on what he heard from Moses. And he gives us a glimpse of what happens in heaven today between the real Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh thought himself to be what? King and God. Well, the real Pharaoh, right? And the real um, and his, his, and his, uh, and, and the real intercessor, the the one who stands before him and 
can speak to him on our behalf. Notice the order of things. Joseph is the one who saw where that when he, he's the one who recognized his brothers. They did not recognize him. Likewise, so many times Our Lady recognizes us way before we ever glance or gaze at her. Way before we ever even think of her, she already has us in her mind. She's already interceding for us. We don't even know it. And then she structures everything for us. She prepares the whole thing. And sometimes the route is difficult. And sometimes we don't see her right away. We don't recognize her. We don't understand what is going on, as happened to the brothers when they were tested. And then she will bring us down to dangerous places and make intercession before the king on our behalf. She does all of this. So it's really important for us not to think of Mary. Um, it, is, it, is, it is one of my pet peeves. For many of us, unfortunately, because we, we kind of, uh, um, we look at statues of Our Lady, and that's wonderful. It's nice to have statues of Our Lady. Don't get me wrong. But oftentimes, because of the statues, we imagine Our Lady sort of stuck in that position in heaven and saying nothing and doing nothing. And we are doing everything because we're saying all these Hail Marys. Or we can imagine if I don't say my rosary, that Mary is not going to do anything for me. And it's a very false image of her. It is, it is not a proper image of her maternal intercession. Do you really think that unless a kid goes to his mom and asks for food, she won't prepare it? Do you really think that unless a kid has a need of some sort, his mother won't do anything about it? Or don't you, don't you know that the mother would have foreseen all that already and would have been working on it or preparing it for a long, long time before even the kid get to the point of asking for it or even being aware that he has a need. And my wife will speak to me about taking a vacation long before the kids realize they really need a vacation. And even when we go on vacation, they're not yet aware that they need one. She saw that way before. Right? And this is how Our Lady works, just as Joseph is working here. So you can read this, this chapter and see in it the way Mary operates. And therefore, back to what I was saying earlier to you, you might be talking to somebody about the faith, and you ought to be mindful of the fact that it is possible, although not provable, but it is possible that Our Lady sent that person to you. Keep, keep that always in mind. Mary is a consummate chess player. I like to give this image of her because we tend to focus on her maternal love, which is wonderful, but we kind of oftentimes almost implicitly assume that she's not, you know, she doesn't have, let's say, the technical know-how or intelligence. We, we kind of dumb her down a little bit, I fear. That, that's not at all who she is. In the spiritual realm, in the combat that she won over the devil, she has received the wisdom from God that is absolutely unparalleled to anything we know we can even conceive or imagine. If the wiles of the devil, of, of Lucifer, are um, superior to the intellect of all of humanity put together, which is true, he's far more intelligent than all of us put together. This is who you're dealing with. The wisdom that Our Lady received surpasses His in ways that we can even begin to comprehend. I mean, one reason why God hides His mother from us, and He does in, in, in a sense, he, he doesn't show us her glory, 
is because if he did show us her glory, what would we be prone to do? Worship her. Worship her. Worship her. If we saw her in her full glory, we would be prone to confuse her with God. Pius XII said that the glory that Our Lady received is not comprehensible to anyone, not even herself. Only God understands it. Her glory surpasses, in fact, her glory surpassed all the glory of all the angels and all the saints put together from the day that she was conceived. Let alone the day when she was assumed in heaven. It's beyond our understanding to really fully, I mean, comprehend what God has done in his mother. Right? So, that's, that. I just wanted to point out to you that you can always take this and meditate on the way God actually works with Our Lady. Now, there's another reading that is very fruitful as well, is a reading about yourself. In this picture between Jacob, Pharaoh, Joseph, the Egyptians, and the Israelites. Jacob, Pharaoh, Joseph, the Egyptians, and the Israelites. Where do you stand? Where do you see yourself? It's a very good meditation to think, to, to, to take this into prayer and then just reflect. Where do you stand? Are you Jacob? Are you Pharaoh? Are you Joseph? Are you just one of those Egyptians? Or are you just one of those Israelites? Who are you and what are you doing? Where do you fit? Morally speaking, which actions are you taking that, that, that draws you well, that draw you closer to, jo- to, to Jacob or to Joseph or to the Egyptians or to Pharaoh or to the Israelites? Right? This is what Scripture is for, for us to see ourselves and see the glory of God through His sacred word. Right? So, worth, worth going through this. I'll point out in verses 5 and 6 that the reason why the Pharaoh addresses Joseph by saying, your father and your brothers have come to you, it sounds as if, on the surface, that Pharaoh is essentially breaking news to Joseph. As if he's saying, hey, Joseph, your dad and your brothers just showed up. But that's not at all what he's saying. That's not what he's saying, right? So, because when we read it, we get to verse five, 4, and uh, verse 5, Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. Well, yeah, I know that. Thank you. What is he saying it for? He's saying it as a formal, official pronouncement. Right? It's a royal edict that he's putting forth. He's recognizing what has happened. He's accepting it and making it part of an official declaration so that he says to everyone, they have come to him, and I know and I agree. That's what's going on here. The land of Egypt is before you, Sell your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my cattle. So you notice here the king is being absolutely true to his word. He's giving them a really good land. And he's asking for, in another translation, for capable men. The Hebrew um, is sometimes used in the sense of men of ability. 
So what he's looking for is men who have expertise. And what he wants to make them effectively is superintendents of the royal cattle. Because, um, so, um, for instance, Ramses III is said said to have employed 3,264 men, mostly foreigners, to take care of his herds. So that's what is happening here. He's giving them positions of honor due to the, the high esteem he has of Joseph. And therefore, they are now officers of the crown and will enjoy legal protection, which is not usually accorded to aliens. Right, so they have a really good position due to their brother. Next, after introducing his brother, he basically picked five, which is essentially a random selection of his brothers to present to Pharaoh, not the entire troop. And uh, then he presents his father. And the reason for the separate audience probably is because Joseph felt it would not be dignified for the aged patriarch to appear in the role of a supplicant. He didn't want his his father to be there while he's essentially asking Pharaoh to provide them with the land. He wants his father to have a position of honor. So he leaves his father aside until he has this thing resolved. And then he brings his father to meet Pharaoh. Now... Verse 7 is really interesting because Jacob brought in, I mean, Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, on the surface, on one level, on one reading, literally, this kind of blessing um, is a sort of a greeting. So. Widespread custom in the ancient Near Eastern world dictated wishing the king long life, as in 2 Samuel 16.16 and 1 Kings 1.31. And later rabbinic practice required the recital of a special blessing upon seeing a non-Israelite king. Blessed be he who has imparted of his glory to his creatures. So on the one surface, you can look at it as a perhaps a proper salutation to royalty. And there is truth in that. But when you dig deeper and you put it into the context of the covenant, something very powerful is happening here. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh blessing Jacob. We've said all along that God's plan has always been to use his firstborn, in this case Jacob, to do what? To bring all the nations to him. And a blessing is the way it will happen. So you see here the real, the real purpose of bringing Jacob down to Egypt. Not the only one, but a real one, an important one for, in God's mind, which is the blessing of Pharaoh. That is what the firstborn is supposed to do. Bring the blessing of God to the nation. And in that regard, every single one of us now has that mission. We have that mission. Wherever we are, whomever we are with, we must bring God's blessings to them. And it doesn't have to be made explicitly, because in many cases they will not accept this kind of blessing. But it can always be made by our witness, the way we live, what is important to us, what we consider essential and not essential, our views on things, the way we treat others must bring to them this kind of blessing. Right? Most converts will tell you that in their lives, one of the reasons why they ended up converting Catholicism was because they met a good Catholic 
family. That was instrumental in their conversion. So one example I can give you, which is very interesting, and that is the example of uh, Israel Zoli. How many of you have heard of Israel Zoli? Yeah, unfortunately, not a lot of people have. Um, I, do, I do encourage you to take a look at his biography, autobiography, actually. Um, Israel Zoli is important because he was the chief rabbi of the synagogue of Rome during the Second World War. And if you've heard about the controversy around Pius XII and how he dealt with the Jews, there are many accusations that he didn't, didn't do enough, he was silent, etc., etc. Well, Israel Zoli converted, became a Catholic, and um, took the name of, um, well, he took the first name of the Pope. In, uh, in thanksgiving for what the Pope has done for them. And he was right there, first-hand witness, and he will, in his testimony, in his, in his uh, autobiography, will tell you what the Pope had done for them. But what is really interesting, he says, I did not convert, I did not become a Catholic because of the Pope. My friendship with Jesus runs way back to when I was in Poland. I had a very good friend, and he names his friend, which I don't remember the name, and I used to go and visit with them. And it is their family that already planted that seed in his heart. A regular Catholic family. Right? And it happens so oftentimes that in our family life, we can be witnesses of, of, of Christ. And we can bring God's blessing through the life that we live in our families. That's very, very important. My house is always full of uh, kids who are not mine. There's always a bunch of them there. Uh, even when I wake up sometimes, they're there. Right? And they actually, some of them remind me that they're, they're almost part of the family. They'll, they'll say that to me. Some will call me uncle. I'm looking forward to the day where my kids are going to be grown and they be on their own and doing what they have to do. So I can take my wife and, and, uh, and uh, be able to spend some time with her without any of them around them. But they manage to bring more of them into my house. And I, am, I'm, I have a sense that the, the life of the family has such an impact on others. is very, very significant that we, we don't give it its due. I have a really good friend of mine also in Canada, a very wonderful family. They had um, uh, John and Ellen Helmers. They had, I think, 11 ch children and lived in a house of 1,600-square-foot home with 11 children. And he was a uh, musician playing in a local orchestra in Kitchener-Waterloo. And when his daughter, they, she homeschooled most of her, I mean, her kids until such time when they went to high school. And when her daughter wanted to go and hang out with her friends at the mall, because, you know, we, we are... We've created such a family-friendly environment here that kids have to hang out at the malls. Uh, her mother told her no. And she said, why don't you invite them over? Well, she did. And these other kids who came into this family with 11 children in a very small house uh, decided to turn that into their mall. They loved being there. Think about your own homes. Are kids clamoring to come and visit with you? And if you have very little kids... Very young children, all well and good. You're not, you don't have to worry about it. But if kids are older, are the neighbors, the other kids, want to come over? 
that tells you something. So that's what I'm talking about in terms of witnessing. It's not something complicated. We have to go to India or the Far East or whatever. It's right where you are, in your own house. We've talked about sojourn. We don't have to say much about it. So when Jacob said, my fathers, he really referred to essentially Isaac and Abraham. And he blessed him again and he bade farewell. The only contact between Jacob and Pharaoh is with this blessing. But that is so key. Because, as I said earlier, this is God's plan all along. It, it is prefiguration of what Christ is going to do through his church to bless the nations. All right. Now we go through uh, Joseph's policy and the way he deals with, the, with this uh, famine. In verse 11, they speak of the district of Ramses, which is very interesting because it's really anachronistic, meaning that back then when he was alive, when this was happening, there was no Ramses to speak of. But that's definitely an indication to those exiles in Babylon who presumably knew about that district. It must have been famous. Right? So, for instance, it would be like when, um, if I'm not mistaken, before New York was New York, was what was it, like New England? New Amsterdam. All right, England, Amsterdam. It's all the same. It's in Europe, right? New Amsterdam. Right? And imagine if someone was writing about somebody living in um, around, uh, let's say, 1690, and he speaks of New York. Well, obviously, that's anachronistic. There was a time, it wasn't called such in 1690, it was called New York later. But he's probably addressing the reader to say, that's where we are. You may not know where New Amsterdam is, but you know where New York is, so that's where we are. And that's presumably why he did it this way. All right. Verse 13, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up, gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So you notice he's not keeping it for himself, he's bringing it over to Pharaoh's house. Um, here is a man, this is a perfect example, you know, when people speak of riches, does this mean if you're rich you cannot go to heaven? No. No. God never such, said such a thing. What he said, though, in Scripture is that it's going to be very, very hard. Why? Why is it going to be very hard for people who are rich to go to heaven? And by the way, just so that you know, because oftentimes when we talk about rich people, most of us make this mental note, it ain't me. I would like to let you know that when you look at the scale, if you put yourselves in where you are right now, on the scale of the entire population, you're very wealthy. So, I hate to break it to you, it applies to you. All right? It applies to all of us. So let's not kid ourselves. All right. Yes. The whole earth, when you look at the distribution of wealth across the entire planet, the way we live and what we have versus what everybody else has, we would be categorized mostly in the wealthy category. Now, wh why is it hard? Yes. But again, I mean, money by in and of itself, you, you, you realize money in and of itself is nothing. Money has no intrinsic value. Have you tried eating money lately? Do you make a salad of dollars and eat it? Can you build a house with money? I mean, literally with money? What can you do with it? Nothing. Right? Money is essentially a pointer to wealth. In itself, it's nothing. 
but in a system that we've built, it points to wealth. So, but why is it that that thing causes so much trouble for us? My question, my very basic, simple question, here's a person who was poor, was poor. Let's say he's dirt poor. He had nothing, nothing, nothing to his name. He found this, you know, lotto ticket floating somewhere, picked it up, is the winner. He's now got $50 million to his name. Here's my question to you. All these things you said, presumably would apply now or to a certain degree. But why didn't they apply yesterday when he had no money? Do you understand my question? No. We're saying about people who have got money that, you know, they can be, they can be attached, they can be, they can be worshipping um, money. We said that they could be saying, I can do everything for myself. I'm not necessarily going to give credit to God. Not always, but it's possible for them to do so. We talked about you know, the fact that uh, they, they are now in really into all the things, all the material possession they can have, etc., etc. Where all this stuff came from for that guy who yesterday was dirt poor and now is rich and he's got all that. So let's fast forward a year. He's been rich a year. Give him a year. Why now that he's a rich a year, the, the words of the gospel apply to him, and it didn't seem to apply to him when he was poor? The basic premise, though, in all of the things we're saying is this. Money acts as a magnifier. It takes all the vices that are already present in the poor and blows them out of proportion so much so that we don't see anything else anymore. It isn't that the poor are intrinsically less, um, have less vices than the rich. You understand? They have the same issues. In fact, St. Thomas will tell you that abject poverty can detract from the faith. It can take you away, as we've seen with the whole communist movement. It created what? Hatred and destruction and evil and you name it. Right? So it isn't that, oh, the poor are just saintly because they're poor and the rich are, you know, damned because they're rich. No. It has everything to do with our virtues and vices. And when you are not in that position of being so rich, you are not able to exercise your vices in the same ease that you would otherwise. Hence, you, as, as was said earlier, you have a chance to focus on God. You, have, you notice that you need help and you ask for it. That's the difference. And I, the reason I spend a little bit of time on this is because I really want to highlight before your eyes the level of sanctity that this man, Joseph, was able to reach. Is he a rich man at this point? Right? Pharaoh told him, in Egypt there shall not be anyone as powerful as you but me. You are numero dos. Right? Not bad. Wouldn't you say? Not bad. Yeah, not bad. He's very wealthy. What does he do? With, and he's the one controlling the money. Notice, there is no, in his case, not just there isn't only a middleman, there are no balances and checks. He's got the books. He's got the money. He can take a cut. No one will know. No one will notice. 
right? He's not using Quicken to keep track of all the money coming in, is he? It's all on tablets. And it's kind of hard to use Google on tablets to find out what happened. It's not easy. He wants to hide something on the carpet. There's nothing to it. He brought it all to Pharaoh. Do you realize? All. Not most of it. And he kept 1% cut. Which you might think, well, you know, for all the work he's done. He brought it all. Think about that. Is he rich? Yes. But in his case, money does what for him? No, no, not just nothing. You're right in a sense, nothing negative magnifies his virtue. It's one thing to say, um, you know, if my friend Fatty gives me 10 bucks and I need to give you the 10 bucks and you're in China and Fatty's not keeping track, I might give you 9 bucks and 56 cents and keep the rest for me. Small amounts, small potatoes, nothing. We're talking the equivalent of millions of dollars that he has complete control over. No one is watching him. Well, that's not really true, is it? Somebody is. Exactly. God. And he is mindful. In his case, his virtue is magnified. Right? And that is, again, where we can see in him an image of Mary. You know, St. Louis de Montfort had that very, very short uh, lapidary statement. He would say, Every time you say Mary, she says Jesus. Every time you say Mary, she says Jesus. What he means is exactly this. Whatever is given to Our Lady is given all, whole, to our Lord. She keeps nothing for herself. So in her case, she was also magnified. So again, it isn't the riches per se that lead you to, to hell. Jesus was making a very practical statement when he said that. And based upon what? Based upon a very simple notion that most of us have a hard time overcoming our vices. Most of us don't work hard enough to overcome our vices. Most of us are not even aware of our vices to begin working on them. Right? Remember what I tell you often, husbands, if you want to know how you can improve, ask your wife. What are the three top things she'd like you to change? Wives, if you want to know how to improve, ask your husbands. What are the three top things he would like you to change? You see, we take so much for granted. I'm giving you a simple example. All right. Uh, how many of you here wear watches? Raise your hand. How many of you wear watches and under are under 25? Nobody. You know why? This generation, the generation of 25 and younger, doesn't wear a watch. You know why? Because when you tell them it's a watch, they look at it and say, why should I wear that? It's a single function device. It does one thing. Now, you might argue that it does more than one thing because it tells you the date. <laughs> but they're not very impressed, are they? It's a single function device. We, of older age have been conditioned to accept that it makes complete sense when you want to see the time to kind of flick your wrist and take a look. 
You know how absurd this is for this younger generation? It makes no sense. But we have been so conditioned that it is absolutely part of the things that we assume and we cannot question it because we do not see anything that needs questioning. Now, this is a little amusing fact. Our vices are not amusing, but they're encrusted in us in habits we do not see anymore. It's really easy to tell if somebody's working on his virtues. You know how? When they're talking to you, do they ever question whether they're talking too much. And the way they do that usually, if they're really questioning, is to just bounce it back off of you and ask questions, get you to give a reaction. But even in one-to-one conversation, you might have somebody who just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and never stops. Here's somebody who doesn't question himself or herself. Why? Because this person is talking to hear himself. He has pleasure in his own voice and what he has to say. He's not talking as an act of charity to communicate knowledge that others might use. So that's why riches, some, most of the time, for most of us, yes. We put them in our hands. It's like, a, it's like a radioactive material. It destroys us. But for some, you can give them all the riches in the world and it will magnify their virtues. All right. Now, I want to say something about the way he handles the situation. Notice he first tells them, all right, give me, give me your money. They do. And then they come back. And they're still hungry. There's still nothing. And they give him their cattle. And then now they have nothing left. And they sell themselves as slaves. All right. A couple of things. What do, we, what do we end up with once all of that is done, said and done? We end up with a system where the state owns everything. Yeah? And the way slavery is mentioned here isn't, you know, the slavery with whips and people beating you down and you have nothing. That's not the kind of slavery we're talking about. You know this, right? It's more of an economic slavery. He gives them back the land where they live and gives them back cattle and gives them grains. And now he asks for what? 20%. Commission, I think, is a very kind way of saying it. It's a tax. It's a tax. You know, the founding fathers understood this really, really well for this country. This is what sets this country apart from any other one. Not, in my mind, not so much the Constitution or the way the power is shared and all of that. None of that can really... Yeah, in, 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 in the eyes of those who see it, it would seem as if everything is working well. But when you factor in collusion and bribes and all the normal vices in the hearts of men, you know, all that stuff can be circumvented. But the one thing that was really key in my mind was the fact that there would be no taxes. And then they introduced the tax. Remember when, when they introduced the tax? What was, who are they going to tax? The when rich. They, the rich, right? Who ended up being taxed? The poor. The poor. What did the rich do? Pardon? How? They hired a bunch of lawyers who find loopholes in the law and made sure that the rich stay rich. Right? So what is the purpose of taxation? What is taxation from God's perspective? Slavery. So therefore, what is it? When you think in terms of the covenant, what is taxes? It's a curse. It's a covenantal curse when people become wayward. You understand? We're not taxed 
willy-nilly. It isn't that our government is becoming more and more socialist because, oh, well, we've elected uh, Mr. Obama. And by the way, I chide anyone when they speak of the president by calling him by his first name or talking in a derogatory way about him. That cannot be a Christian attitude. No matter what you think of him, no matter how you, whether you, you agree with his positions and you don't, and I personally don't, and most of, the, most of his policies, I don't, particularly when it comes to life. Uh, but he is the president, and we must show proper respect. Right? Very important. So, back to what I was saying earlier. Pardon? Well, whether he respects himself or not is not, nothing I can do or control about, but I must respect him. Why? In imitation of Jesus Christ, who respected Pilate. Okay? But even Jesus, if you notice, when he spoke to Pilate, shows him respect. Didn't yell at him, scream at him, call him names, call him drug, none of that. He spoke to him with respect. And so we must speak with respect due to the dignity of every human being. All right. Having said that, it isn't because we've elected Mr. Obama as a president that our that we are where we are, right? We're talking here about what? The covenantal curses that flow from the fact that as a nation, we've forsaken the covenant. So taxes go up, yes. The hand of the state becomes heavier, yes. We move towards socialism, yes. And that's where it gets really interesting because what the state wants to do is what exactly? Become Pharaoh. There is no other choices. You're either going to worship God or you're going to worship the state. And the state has to move in the situation. So the state would rather you don't tithe and you pay taxes. The state would rather you don't do charity and you pay taxes. All these are concessions on the part of the state. Right? The state would like to have a very large set of educators who believe in the state, not in the parents. Who believe that their duty is not to be assisting the parents in teaching the children, but their duty is to impart upon them the knowledge that the state wishes to impart upon them. The parents become the enemy. And on and on it goes. But that's not because it is them out there, those bad people who are doing all of this, as we always characterize the situation. We're always tempted from by the polarity. We're the good guys and the bad guys. You know what? That's fun in Hollywood with the movies they produce. You know, you can check your brain at the door, sit down, enjoy a movie, and be done with it. Great. But not in reality. It's not us against them. As soon as we focus this way, we're back in the horizontal mode, and we completely miss that the Lord is Lord of lords and lords of king, and he is directing the ways of history for his greater glory. And that's where we miss a proper and a right interpretation of the situation we're in. Simple as that. So, you can see in Egypt, they're moving in this way, right? Everything's going to be owned by Pharaoh. Everything's owned by the state. They become effectively in, in, in indebted to the state. The state will provide everything to you. And today, if you look in socialist countries who are very successful, such as in the Nordic uh, countries, Finland, um, Sweden, right? Uh, most of the people are atheists because the state provides everything. So hence, you're tithing to the state. You see? And what is that when truth moves away? Right? I'll read to you a passage from the 
book of Amos, as we get uh, to close this, uh, um, on this chapter here. Turn to Amos, uh, chapter 8, because um, he says it pretty well in Amos, chapter 8. So Amos is a prophet that was sent to the um, kingdom of Israel, and he is prophesying what the Lord is going to do to them in chapter 8. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, says the Lord God. The, the dead bodies shall be many in every place. They shall be cast out in silence. Hear this, you who trample upon the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal, and deal deceitfully with false balances. Deal deceitfully with false balances. Not happen today, right? We don't have these people who are dealing deceitfully with false balances, right? Hmm. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the, ref, uh, the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account and everyone mourn with, who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, says the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. This is standard fair language to say your kingdom is about to be leveled. Your time is up. This is not about the end of the world. This is about the end of a political order that has structured itself to be set up against God. Who's turned itself against God. God is going to level it. That's the standard language. Imagery used to say your clock is going to stop ticking. Your time is up. All your internal structure is going to be completely destroyed because this is what I do. And last week, remember, I read to you from Our Lady Fatima who said, wars are punishment by God. And the end of wars is what? Complete change in political regime and change in economic structure. And uh, in some cases, the establishment of atheistic countries where the church recedes, which is the punishment of God. I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth upon all loins and baldness on every head. What is the sign of baldness in every head? What is sackcloth and baldness? What is that? It's forced, it's essentially fasting and humility. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Now notice, now key in on this. He's sending a famine, just as we had a famine in Egypt, right? Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water. It isn't what you think it is, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That's the famine. Of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, who is sending this famine? Yeah. So, you know, when I have people come to me and complain about this priest or that priest and how bad this priest is and does this and then the other, I keep on reminding them, God sends you the priest you deserve. He sent those priests. He's allowing all this to take place. 
It's not us versus they. It is us who have sinned. That's our problem. That's what we don't want to admit. It's a famine of the words. In uh, in the in the um, in a dialogue he has with Sister Faustina, our Lord tells her that he is going to punish the world by allowing his church to be persecuted. Why? Because it creates a famine of the word. How many of you, or how many of you know, or are aware of people who did not know that contraception is a mortal sin? That you should not be using contraception. You don't have to even raise your hand. I'm not asking particularly, but you know what I'm talking about. What is that? It's a famine of the Word of God. Families have been destroyed. Families have been torn apart. Kids are hell-bound because of this. You understand? That is something we must be aware of. Where, what is God doing today? God is almighty. And he deals with us according to our iniquities when we do not invoke his mercy. And that is we do not invoke it with a pure heart. God is always in control. He's never out of control. So in Egypt, going back to what we're seeing here, there's this, this situation where everything that the Egyptians have, have is, is being dispossessed from them and given to Pharaoh, who now owns everything and who is going to provide to them, thereby accentuating the notion that Pharaoh is God. He's got everything. He's the one you go to to get anything from him. While the Israelites do not suffer that fate. They live in Goshen. They have their own herds. They don't pay tribute to Pharaoh. They're not paying the taxes. So in that situation, when you look at it, you understand what God is trying to tell us. From an economic point of view, but also from the um, spiritual point of view, as he points out how he wants to deal with us. Remember later on, the, the Israelites themselves are going to ask God for a king, which, which kindles the wrath of God on them. Why? Because they missed it. They showed they did not understand. If God is your king, asking for another king is tantamount to rebellion. Why? Because they didn't want to be a kingdom of priests anymore, as the church is, or supposed to be. They wanted to be a kingdom like any other kingdom. And many of us within the Catholic Church have acted this way. We don't want to be Catholic anymore. It's not popular. So we've, we've let contraception come in. We've stopped teaching our kids the right teaching. We've stopped paying attention to where we're sending them to, what school. Whether You realize today you send your kid to a university, not secular, because secular is the wrong word, but a anti-religion university like SDU or, uh, yeah, SDU. Let me repeat it one more time. SDU or USD, whatever that thing is. University of San Diego. That's supposed to be Catholic. This is not a Catholic university, right? If you send your kid to USD or to SDSU, and that you're taking a kid who's been going to Mass regularly, uh, wears the scapular, prays the rosary, all that good stuff, within one year that kid has lost his faith. One year, that's all it takes. Okay, so what are you supposed to do then? You don't send your kids there. Ah, where do you send them? You fall on your knees and you ask the boss, where am I supposed to do now? Now you have a biblical dialogue. Now you're living biblically. He is, he is, 
I mean, he's the boss, right? He'll figure it out. Put him in charge. Maybe they'll end up going to one of these universities because he knows, despite it all, they will not lose their faith. But don't automatically pick a university based on pagan criteria. This is the best university out there because, you know, they have the right set, you know, credentials, etc., etc. Therefore, that's why I'm going to send my kids. When you do that, you are breaking this covenant with God. You're saying, it doesn't really matter where I'm, when I'm putting my kid. I'm just going to let him face the world, discover everything is out there. Every garbage can, he can jump in and dive. I'm going to let him do that. It's great. But I believe in you, God. I'm going to go to Mass next Sunday. Right. Who are you kidding? Do you understand? Yeah. Okay. This is what Joseph did. He brought his brothers. He thought about it. Where are they going to be? How to introduce them to Pharaoh. What to do. He acted in many ways as a firstborn. He really took care of them. That's how we ought to act today. Yeah? Yes. So these are the current human list is a list of Catholic universities which are okay. And my actually my I know I've known about it because of my daughter who's now sixteen and looking into universities and she wants to graduate in music and she told me straight out, Dad, I'm, lo- I'm only looking at universities on this list because I don't want to lose my faith. And so she's thinking of going to University of Texas, the University of St. Thomas in Texas. And even though their music department is not as famous or as great as many universities are here, she's choosing this because she doesn't want to lose her faith. Yeah, there are sacrifices to be made if the faith is important. Now, don't you think God is watching? Don't you think? I, I didn't say anything. I'm not the one who told her, okay, this is where you're going to go. You know, I'm, I didn't do any of that. She's the one who just did her research on her own. Okay? So my second is thinking of John Paul II. That's where she wants to go, etc. So those are not mainstream universities, not the top whatever league. Do you think God cares about the top whatever? Okay, that's how you have to think. Yeah? All right, so um, I'll take questions uh, in a minute, but uh, I just wanted to finish this by one more quotation. Here's, a, I think, a very um, good quotation from Origen, who is one of the fathers. If, therefore, we understand these words spiritually concerning the bondage of the Egyptians, we recognize that to serve the Egyptians is nothing other than to become submissive to carnal vices and to be subjected to demons. At any rate, no necessity coming from without forces anyone into the state. Rather, the sluggishness of the soul and the lust and pleasure of the body overcome each one. The soul, by its own carelessness, subjects itself to this. But one who bears a concern for the freedom of the soul and improves the dignity of his mind with thoughts pertaining to heaven belongs to the children of Israel. Although he may be violently oppressed for a time, nevertheless he does not lose his freedom forever. For our Savior also, discussing freedom and bondage in the gospel, speaks thus. Everyone, he says, who sins is a servant of sin. And again, he says, if you continue in my word, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And the point of origin, therefore, is contemplating what happens in Egypt between those who serve the Egyptians, where the number five is predominant, which he he considers to be the, the the sign of the senses, hence the sign of everything that is bodily and the vices of the body, versus the, the Israelites who live by the number 10, number of perfection and number of the Decalogue. The difference, therefore, is that even those who are now among the Egyptians are bonded to Pharaoh, to Satan, 
by their own needs. Because remember, it's hunger and thirst and all the carnal needs. He's, extra- he's extrapolating and he sees in it a symbol, a representation for all those who get in bondage for all these material things because of their own bodily needs. And his point is that if you actually turn away from this, God will free you, even though you may fall from time to time. You know, St. Jose Maria Escriva described a Christian to be one who begins and begins again. You might fall, you might stand, and you might fall, and you might stand, and you might fall, and you might stand. But as long as you keep on standing and keep on trying, you are walking on the path of sanctity, which is what God is asking us to do. So you might be for a time a slave, so you might fall because of a variety of reasons, but if you keep on seeking the truth, you will find that truth because Jesus will lead you to it, and it's himself, and the truth will set you free. God bless you. All right, questions? Yes. Joseph came up with the idea of taxing them up to 20%. Having said that, it is not uncommon in the ancient world to see taxation of that kind. For instance, in Mesopotamia, there were also taxations that went... In fact, his was fairly generous. In Mesopotamia, there were taxations that went up to 50%. He's increasing the wealth of Pharaoh, yes. Well, what happens is that whatever, whatever you make, whatever the land produces, 20% would go to Pharaoh. Whereas before... The Egyptians owned their own land, and they did not give taxes to, to Pharaoh. Now it became mandated that you would do such a thing. So yes, the, the wealth of Pharaoh is, is increasing. Now notice the Egyptians themselves thanked him for it, because it was a way for them to save themselves. And also, remember that they could see in that case how having a strong centralized government will take care of them later, if it ever happened again. So they were happy to pay taxes. That's the thought, that Pharaoh will take care of them. Yeah. But effectively, it's Pharaoh who's become, who's become richer now. Yeah. Yes, indeed. This is a very good question. The question is, well, if you don't, you know, if you don't tax people, how are you going to take care of infrastructure? Police, you know, armies, streets, everything else. Right? Well, the answer to this is that <laughs> we can't conceive of any other way than taxation to do this. But the fundamental premise is that when you have people come together and when they have a king and a good king, the king will, from his own treasury, take care of all of these things. Well, we're beyond that right now. But, but the point is that God is not beyond that. Okay. Right? In his way of looking at things, he always proposes to us the right way of doing things. The fact that we strayed so far away from it does not make it natural. It still remains what it is. Wrong. Now, we got used to it just as the Egyptians would get used to paying taxes. Well, of course, he has a will for us to have a king. He is the king. He is the worldly king. My kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world, he told them. But when he said that, he didn't mean, that means my kingdom is some sort of ethereal thing out there with floating wings and stuff. His point was, because the foundation of my kingdom are outside this world, it is the only kingdom that will last and will rule this world. No, no. It doesn't leave us to the conclusion that all governments are evil. All that it says is that fundamentally on this planet, we have to constantly remind ourselves that where, as we stray from the covenant and we stray from the covenant repeatedly, God will trigger the covenant to bring us back. And one of the mechanisms 
is taxation. Going back to your example, if you, if, you really, if you really thought about it, if you actually farmed out all this work to private property by people who are virtuous, you could achieve the same work. Or a lot less. And you don't need to tax people. They would willingly participate in that if they were virtuous. Hence, taxation fundamentally is a mechanism put in by governments to deal with people who are what? No, not, well, lazy, I would say simply. Sinners. It's, it's a way of curtailing sin. Taxation is like the old covenant. Right? I mean, today, who can understand the taxation code? Not just of the United States, by the way. Of any country. Exactly. The bigger the government, the greater the curse. Exactly. If you think about democracy, for instance, right? Democracy is also very much like the Old Covenant. If we were truly a kingdom of priests, we would not need democracy. We would have something far better. We have absolute certainty, absolute truth, absolute goodness. But that's heaven. That's the Catholic Church. That's why the Church will never be a democracy. People who ask for the Church to become a democracy have no clue the covenant and what it means and all that stuff. Not the king. He is the prime minister of the king. Exactly. He rules in his authority, by his authority. Exactly. That's why all these people are so hell-bent against the Church. Because they get it. In essence, the Pope is indeed Joseph. Yes. Yes. You got it. Yes. Yes, if we were, I mean, this is exactly the point. If we could all live according to the teaching of the, the church, and I would encourage you to actually read upon the social teaching church. I might have even a talk on this. I might bring it up to the, it's a wonderful framework that I have in place. You would see that most of these issues we're dealing with and difficulties would just go away, right? But we, we don't. So part of it is our own doing. We get ourselves into all this mess. But part of it is God's way of punishing us for being so greedy, for not really caring, for going the wrong way. So he can bring us back. And sometimes not just to bring us back. It's just plain punishment. Yeah. Yeah. My, that, that's why effectively we are going back full circle. We must be sojourners. Right? Jesus said, and that's a very damning sentence for this world. Very damning sentence. He said, the poor, you will have always. Implying by that, even though it wasn't his first statement, he meant it as a grace, really, that that presence would be a grace to you. It would be a means of salvation. But the underlying message is, don't ever think that any state and any government will ever completely eradicate all forms of poverty. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't, oh, well, okay, you know, 20 million people are starving to death in Africa. Let's not do anything about it. No. But I'm talking in terms of government control, state control. You will never be able to eradicate poverty this way. The poor, you will have always. Yes, very good, very good. The question is, what about you know, some of the socialized ideas that you should have ways to help care for the poor, etc.? It goes back to this whole notion between tithing and taxes. We should care for the poor. Remember, the hospital as an institution for health was invented by whom? The Catholic Church. No one else did that. The Church did. So should we care for the poor? Yes, the sick, absolutely. But as a means of sanctification for those who are doing the caring as well. Otherwise, it's a form of cruelty. 
if I have to pay a nurse $120,000 a year so that she can take care of people because of her salary, I am actually cursing her. Because all the graces that she should be receiving from that service, if she had actually done it according to God's will, are not being received. You understand? Well, it's not, exactly, it's, but it's not the question of a country. We go back to who we are as Catholics. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to promote? Where do we stand? This is the truth. We bring truth to others. The right way to do it is when you have people who dedicate their lives to the service of God in the service of the poor. Like who? Who was able to do what Mother Teresa was able to do? Among all these socialized countries. Nobody. That's the point. Right? That's why it brings atheism. Okay? That's because it kills the spirit. It takes care of the body. It completely kills the spirit because God is nowhere to be found. Yeah? Yes. Oh, yeah. No, that's not... I didn't cover this. Good question. Um, when Jacob told him, swear to me, he's basically putting him under an oath. He's taking a covenant with him that his, whatever he says will come true. And if he doesn't, he will be cursed. It is quite all right for us to, in essence, enter into an, a, uh, a, um, um, an agreement where I would say I'm going to do something. As soon as I say I'm going to do something, I'm bound by my word. You understand? Swearing simply means you're taking an oath. No, but see, what Jesus, it's not in the Old, it's in the New. Jesus was telling him not to swear, neither by God nor by heaven, for it's his, uh, uh, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool. He was, make, he was bringing attention to the fact that many people were doing rash, um, um, they're taking rash oaths. So Peter is a perfect example, right? Even if those let you go, I'm going to be with you all the way to the end, right? And he, right? Taking rash oath. He was saying, don't do that. Stop. For instance, you hear a lot of people today who tell you something, and they say, I, I swear to God. That's what he's saying. Be, be careful when you interpret Scripture. You can't just take one sentence, take it out of the Scripture, and then make it say something it's not even trying to say. You have to look at the context. All right? Yes. The glorified body? Yes. Uh, there, there are actually um, four qualities. Uh, first, it will be forever young. You will look the way you would, you, you will look at your best forever. So it will never age. Always be young. Second, it will never feel hunger, thirst, uh, sickness. Right? Third, it will be uh, a body that allows you to go through matter. You won't need doors and windows and what have, what have you. And fourth, it will be a body that allows you to move at the speed of thought. So that becomes more angelic in, in, a, in, in a sense. So if you wanted to be somewhere, you just think about it and you're there. So those are the four categories of characteristics of the bodies uh, of the glorified body that we know of. There may be others we don't know. As there are differences between one flower and any other. Yes, absolutely. It's unique beauty. Irreplaceable. Unrepeatable. Yeah. Yes. Right. What is the implication? We don't pay our taxes. We inaccurately paid them. Going back to Fadi's point I was making earlier. Um, remember, every curse is not necessarily to condemn us to hell. Many of them are medicinal. God is showing us how we're acting. So as we were kids, so I'm going to put some limits around you to get you to realize this. So taxation is one of those limits. What are the implications? Jesus was very clear. Give Caesar what is Caesar. So, on that subject, right? 
you're not paying your taxes, you decide you're not going to pay your taxes or you're going to fudge it, um, it's called stealing. You're not giving Caesar what is Caesar's. But I'll give you other examples most people are not aware of, and most people do without even thinking. Um, you have a DVD of a movie you like. You make a copy. You give me the copy. That's called stealing. There's no difference. You have a tape that you like. You make a copy. You give it to somebody else. It's stealing. Somebody has a material that is copyrighted and tells you, don't copy it. You copy it. It's stealing. Do I want, do you want me to keep on going? Okay. Our, our conscience gets to be so dull because we are attracted and we want the easy solutions. We want what's out there. So please, if you go home and you have stacks of CDs of stuff that you copied, whether it's software or music or whatever, do yourself a favor. Disregard all of that stuff and go to confession. And don't do it again. All right? Because that's what it is. There's no other way to call it. You're using something without giving what is due to someone. And now we can argue till the kingdom comes that, well, they're making too money, they're too rich, you're not supposed to make this much money. You are not the judge. Now, you're actually insulting our Lord. And you're telling Him, you're not good enough to be able to deal with them. I'm going to take matters in my own hand, and I'm going to deal with it. You understand? He is the king of kings. You think he's not seeing it if they're making too much money, being greedy, etc.? You think it escapes him? So, here's the, the short form answer for all these areas in, the, in our moral lives where we kind of cut corners because we think, oh, well, you know, I'm going to be better than God and I'm not going to rely on him and his providence to help me out with my difficulties. I'm just going to do it myself. Yes, you're correct. Exactly. So, yes, indeed. It goes all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, right? By the sweat of your brow shall you... That's exactly the point. Do you think there were taxes in the garden? That was what God intended. There was no taxes, and there was no IRS office open in the garden. That's... No death, right? That's how He intended it to be. But now we broke that. And now we have to keep on continuing. Now, after he came, he, what did he do? He took the sting of death away. That's how St. Paul says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Not, Oh, death, where are you? Death, was, death remains, but the sting of death, what is the sting of death? What does it mean when somebody stings you? It's the poison, right? It's gone. Death has become a tool for sanctification. So likewise, taxes. So likewise, all these things for the faithful, for the ones who trust in Him, become tools of sanctification. Just as money and all the riches sanctified Joseph and didn't condemn him. That's what Christ enables us to do. To take the trap that Satan has laid for us here and turn it upside down. And make everything that is supposed to be condemnation for us, a curse, into a blessing. Through the blood of Jesus. That's what He changed. But he left everything else in place because he knows we need it. Yeah? Any other question? Yes, last one. But my point, though, is, again, the key point that you also made is, who gives authority to governments? You see, initially, when there was royalty going on, and again, I'm not, I'm not advocating, let's go back to kings, and, and that's not at all I'm saying. 
I'm only pointing out that back then it used to be the case that the Pope would be anointed by, I mean, the, the king would be anointed by the Pope. Why? Because he would then represent right, the sort of um, uh, executive side that would take care of all these things so that the Pope and the, and, the, and the bishops could focus on prayer. Where do we get that from? Acts. Where the apostles came and said, it is not good for us to be essentially handling all these admin stuff. Let's get good administrators. Let them deal with it. We go back to prayer. That's what we're supposed to do. So that's how it was. At least there was this understanding. You know, many, many kings were corrupt and we have all these issues. Don't get me wrong. Exactly. So, so my point is... Exactly. Yes. So, so what is the conclusion of all of this? Go back to the book of Daniel. Because in the book of Daniel, he shows you what we're supposed to do. Oh Lord, we have sinned before your face. Have mercy on us. It's this notion that forget all these people out there. Talk about the people in the church. The firstborns are not doing their duty. The firstborns contracepted. The firstborns fell flat on their faces and did not do what they were supposed to do. And if you are if if they are starving and hungry spiritually, how do you think the people out there would be doing? Do not be surprised at the state of the world when you look at the state of the church. Fix the church, you fix the world. That's how it works. So what does that mean? Practically speaking, find yourselves good Catholics in your own parish. In your own parish. And then make a group of people who are willing to come and pray and sacrifice so that there will not be one single sacrilegious communion in your church. That's what we should be focused on. Instead, we're all the way out there being active. Great, wonderful activities. Don't get me wrong. Beautiful. God bless them all. But they're all band-aids. You're not going to stem the flow. You're not going to fix the problem by trying to deal with politics directly or trying to deal with legislations or what have you. It's right here. Here's what to sort. You do this. He, he's the boss. He can fix it. That's it. As simple as that. But we are too agitated and focused out there to be focused on him. So again, I repeat it to you. In your parish, you have to go to India, you have to do amazing things, you know, jump on a trampoline, what have you. All you have to do, find a group of people who are willing to come together before the Blessed Sacrament, when it's exposed, offer prayers and sacrifices, and sacrifices for one purpose only, so that no sacrilegious communion would take place in your parish. Forget the world, forget the nation, forget everything else. Your local parish. Just do that. And that can change the world. Because when you present this to the Lord, it, it pleases Him exceedingly, and His mercy responds. You understand? Okay. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.